Welcome to the New Zealand China Council podcast. I'm Jeff Shepard, Executive Director of New Zealand China Trade Association. NZCTA is a membership-based organisation with a 40-year history promoting and strengthening trade and investment relations between New Zealand and China. Today on the Council's platform, we are pleased to share a breakfast seminar we co-hosted with North Asia Cape featuring John Cochran, General Manager of Factian Intelligent Technology. John walked us through his China journey, sharing insights drawn from more than two decades working in the China market with a focus on technology. My journey starts in October 96, really, and which is pre-China. And when I say the journey starts there, that's when I started out working for Comtest as what I call that guy. And that guy is the one guy you've got in an overseas market. You know, partly because I just knew some people, partly because I was willing and crazy and I had a spare bedroom in my home and a bit of space in my garage and that, I became that guy that was employed overseas to manage basically the whole of the American market for this small startup company. So that was everything from trade shows to taking product orders and shipping product and repairing product and, and all sorts of things and trying to build a, a distributor network and so on. Then in 99, I'm invited for what was meant to truly be just a year, a bit of a reverse OE. I was invited to come into Christchurch and to live for a year, and here I am. I never, never left, so to speak. Um, but again, to give you just a sense of that beginning, very simple office next to a petrol station, secondhand furniture, I mean, tear, tears in the carpet and so on. Very, very humble, humble beginnings, right? So the successes that I'm talking about are not just for the big guys, I guess is one one thing I want to really thread through this is that you can start out small and scrappy and you can still be successful. The technology, I won't bore you too much, but the technology was an interesting journey as well through the, the years I was with Comtest. We started out at the very bottom end, you might say, of the value chain. We were selling very low cost, simple, what we called data loggers. Essentially, we were trying to take a bill of materials of around two to $300. And if we could double that, Man, we were happy. So we could sell a $300 device for 600 bucks overseas and woohoo, you know, that was success for us. But we also had a little niche uh, bit of technology that, that monitored the machinery or the, the motor health on electric trains, diesel electric trains. And so again, we had a very good customer base growing in Europe as a result of that technology. But over the years, we learned I think a very valuable lesson of selling on the value provided and not what your bill of materials are. So over the course of the years, we went from selling a $300, $200 product for $500, $600 to selling essentially what costs us about $2,000 to make for $20,000, $25,000. You know, by increasing that value perception and selling on value rather than just a cost plus approach. So a crash course, a 60-second crash course in vibration analysis, the, most, the simplest analogy is to think about an ECG or EKG, as Americans like to call it. You, know, you put sensors around your body, you take some measurements, and the doctor is able to interpret something out of those squiggly lines. Well, in a similar analogous way, by planting sensors or placing sensors on machinery and looking at the vibration patterns in that machinery, both the severity and the pattern, you can detect all sorts of faults all sorts of faults in, in rotating industrial machinery in very, very early stages of development. Now, niche. This is another story about through New Zealand companies. Like Steve and Joyce used to say, we have to operate in a niche within a niche, you know, and that kind of thing. And so we found our niche in wind energy. 
And the reason why we chose wind energy was a high value asset. You know, each, we say stick in the ground is well over a million dollars each in terms of its overall cost. Um, it was a new emerging high growth industry. And because it was new, it wasn't dominated by our competitors. We said, okay, that's a great space for us to look at. And again, what I really want to say is the focus on the value. Now, that's a pretty catastrophic failure. I'm sorry, pulling it out of the way. <laughs> but wind turbines, if you think about them, even here in New Zealand, they're normally installed in pretty remote places, offshore, hilltops, and so on. They can grind themselves to bits unless you've got technology on there that is actually monitoring the faults. And so what we were saying to the wind energy companies, not necessarily the manufacturers of the wind turbines, get to that story in a bit, is for $15,000 per turbine, you can, give a, you can basically have an insurance policy. You're going to know in advance before anything goes catastrophically wrong with that wind turbine, and we can guarantee it. And way, way, way before cloud ever became a word, we even then bundled things in where we were offering what we call the remote diagnostics or, or a remote monitoring service, where if the customers provided, they allowed us to tunnel into their infrastructure, the data infrastructure, we could provide alerts and corrective actions anywhere in the world. And again, this is going back 10 years ago or more. So about 2001, 2002, the wind started shifting in the minds of our chairman and our shareholder, um, a gentleman who has since passed away, but I had great affection for. And he saw that we were probably to what he thought was kind of saturated a point in Europe as far as, hard, as, far as how, how well we could go. And I was really enjoying myself, I have to say, being sort of the chief evangelist in the company. I was spending weeks and weeks away in Europe every year on the company's packet, you know, sort of weekends, Paris, Amsterdam, London. You know, it's not all bad. And the chairman says, uh, John, there's got to be a lot of things shaking, a lot of things rattling in China. You know, there must be a lot of things rattling there. So it's an industrial country. Why don't you get on a plane and go see? Right. So, go, so as I said, Again, thanks to Ray. <laughs> that was me. Remember Goldstein? Those remember the Goldstein ads? I had great affection for Goldstein because I was the American living in New Zealand. I could really identify with Goldstein. But also, that's kind of how my boss, I had the same kind of boss, if you remember the Goldstein ads, and being told, go see what's happening. Go figure out what's going on over there. So that was me. Jack, my boss, says, John, got to go look into China. There's something. Oh, I, he just felt it. And I was the guy. I volunteered, you might say. Now, I was saying to Paul earlier, that that's actually a recent photo. That's a recent photo. Um, I think a couple of weeks ago, that's from one of the dust storms. So it's not, don't think of all the air pollution necessarily. But that was very much how my arrival day, my first ever day in Beijing looked, was like that. And I think I had gotten off of a plane from Chicago or something. I think, what the hell did I just land into? I say, not knowing anybody, not knowing a word of the language, didn't know me how anything and just saying to go figure stuff out, go in there and just try and meet people. Now, all we did have, we had one electronic relationship, which is something I'll come back to also. So we had a so-called distributor in Beijing that we had only been communicating with via the odd phone call, email, fax, and so on back in the day. And I'll start with him. He bought a few things off of us. He didn't cause us any trouble. I'll meet Tim and just see what he is. So we, we organized the meetings. So I spent about a week in Beijing talking with Tim and, and his people and so on. You know, one of the things I, I joke about sometimes is I go, remember going first time to one of our local restaurants and um, not realizing that there are bones in the fish. 
you know, and about ending up in the hospital as a result of just chomping into a piece of fish, these sorts of things, right? But it didn't put me off. So I did keep going back and, and uh, continue to work with our distributor, Tim, and um, helping just to understand him, understand our goals and what we wanted to accomplish and also like understand his capability, his team's capability. So over the years, through the efforts of, of Tim and others, um, we did land some very successful um, SOEs as clients. Again, it wasn't easy. It often take, took years to convince these companies to adopt our technology. But what I found is once they did, the relationship was very, very sticky, right? It, was very, it would last for years, almost like an annuity. You would, you would just get order after order after order once you've actually got in and got embedded with these customers. So that was really worth it. So we did formalize a presence. We went beyond just that distant electronic relationship. We did establish our own team in Beijing. Now, back in the time, at that time, the rep office structure worked well for us. Not saying that's the way you would go today, but it worked well for us at the time. We grew that team to about 15 persons in total. It was 100% localized, you know, to the point where I started taking a step back and wasn't so directly involved in what was going on. And I guess one bragging right sort of thing is just to see how a little bit of New Zealand technology can get in. That's the Three Gorges Dam. And buried in there somewhere is some, is some contest technology, just making sure that things, things actually run properly and don't fall apart. So it does show with that tenacity, having the right people, the right technology, a great value proposition, the patience, you can get in there. Now, not every day was a Mars day or the orange sky day. I have to say also happily that I was able to essentially live in Beijing on and off for a good chunk of the year and enjoyed some of the celebratory times, you know, in and around the 2008 Olympics. This time was a really favorite time. I mean, remember the national day of, of 2009, the sky was as blue as blue could possibly be for Beijing on that day, I remember. <laughs> you know, they talked about later the APEC blue or these sorts of things, but it was immaculate, perfect day. On national day 2009, we had an apartment set aside for me, the company arranged. And so, you know, Northern Hemisphere, Southern Hemisphere, all my winter gear was up in Beijing. My summer clothes were down here and just sort of fly back forth and just get into that kind of monitoring mode. Again, because the team was, for the most part, pretty autonomous and they were just, just cracking on and getting things done. Now, around the same time, a romance, you might say, started with GE, GE Energy, because GE's got a number of divisions and it's energy, the power generation side of GE. Now, we started off, quite frankly, as an annoyance, a pain to GE, because GE was, and they probably still are, the largest manufacturer of wind turbines in the world. Now, another thing is, is that on the time that the wind turbines are installed, about 25% of them have a fatal flaw somewhere. The point is you don't know where. So we were telling GE's customers this. <laughs> and they didn't like that very well, right? So that we were now providing technology that would help their customers see exactly what was going wrong with the wind turbines. So GE first started looking, talking to us about maybe private labeling, a joint ownership or an equity play in some sort. And then we just said, look, why don't you buy the company? And they, they agreed. And that was about a three-year journey from initial conversation through to acquisition in August 2011. Now, to be very candid, though, it wasn't just because of China and it wasn't just because of wind energy that GE bought us. We, ha we had also built success in the U.S. market in other industries as well. So wind, uh, wind energy, uh, coal mining, and the movement of coal was another industry where we were quite closely involved with 
rail and light rail still stayed an important industry for us. So some lessons for me from the contest, and that's probably the biggest chunk of this presentation, that slice, is about that indirect sales on their own, there's a place for indirect sales, but on their own, we're never going to allow us to achieve the results we wanted to achieve. That we had to have an in-market presence, and it's still a small, struggling company. We established in-market presence three times, first in the US in 2005, then in Beijing, and then lastly in Dubai, in the UAE. And in every case, that establishment of a, of a local, localized and local presence made all the difference in the world. I hear a lot, especially more as a trade commissioner, about New Zealand companies not having the ability to scale. I think, frankly, that's an overused excuse. You know, having done it, having lived through it, having lived through the challenges and known what it costs to do these things well, I'd say it's often an excuse. Often. Not all the time, but quite often an overused excuse. I would say make mistakes somewhere else first <laughs> before going in deeply on China. Government agencies, MFAT, NZT, others, depending if you're in agricultural MPI or, and so on, you know, these, these agencies can be incredibly valuable and it's really worth connecting with them. Partner to me is a verb, right? It's not a noun. We partner. That's what we do. And you've got to create partnerships and you have to be active in those partnerships. Signing a document, having a celebratory dinner, and then sort of buggering off and getting on a plane and never talking to your partner again is not the way to get things done. Say, oh, but I had a contract. Oh, but I had an agreement. Partnering is that verb. Next comes NZT. And again, I'm an unashamed fan of NZT. I had been a customer all through the contest years. And I had sort of, not that quietly, let a few people know that whenever my contest journey came to an end, I'd be keen to join. And it just got lucky, frankly, lucky, accidental, you know, right time, right place, right opportunity. NZT was looking to hire somebody, I think, from a tech background, a manufacturing background. Um, so I got selected for that role in Guangzhou. What does a trade commissioner do? Now, there's a few ex-trade commissioners in the room, <laughs> a few of us. That's part of it. You know, I call it the kissing babies and ribbon cutting and opening ceremonies and that sort of stuff. And that's part of the, the trade commissioner role. That is part of it. Um, ceremonies and those sort of things. A lot of it is actually just behind your computer in your office. That is my real office. I'm a real desk, open plan. So no big, high, cushy back chairs, you know, no executive suite or anything, just mixing in with your team. I had eight people as part of my local team. Those eight people did the real work. I get all the credit. Not really fair, but that's kind of the way that it, that it worked. Um, but the reality is, especially as I had to later interview, and, and interviews tell people, what did you do as a trade commissioner besides ceremonies and so on? I see it a bit more like this as real estate or a real estate broker. If you think about a real estate professional, they're paid, they're, you know, they're on commissions and so on. They have to take inventory products that is not theirs. Right? They don't create it. They can't even set the price on it. They don't set the conditions on it. They just accept it and then try and connect that, that product, that inventory with the buyer. And in a way that brokering of relationships is how I see that NZTE works. We often get a product and sometimes we don't get to choose what that product or company is. And we are then tasked with trying to find them an appropriate partner in China. Now, all of that, those activities are tracked in a CRM system. And these are the outcomes as verified by our CRM system during my five years in China. Again, for the most part, activated by my team, not me. But 151 separate transactions 
that we call deals, about $145 million of value. Now, to be fair, again, the other trade commissioners in the room can comment on this, is that it's got to be new business, right? So, that's, so we're, not, we're not tilting the books in our hands or, til- or stacking the deck in our favor. It's new transactions, new business. So the range of those transactions, anywhere from just a few thousand dollars up to the highest one in my records was $29 million for a single transaction. And again, 34 of those deals related to technology and manufacturing. And I want to pause on that point because I think it's a premium that goes missed. So of the deals and transactions, 23% of them were in tech and manufacturing by number, but 31% by value. So there's a higher value per transaction there. So about 850, if you're doing just a mathematical average on the non-tech versus a $1.3 million value on the tech and manufacturing transactions. So hence, again, I really enjoyed working in that space. And without naming companies, it's all covered under confidentiality agreements. Those were the sectors that my team and I were pretty active in during my, my five years in China. So some takeaways from China experience or the NZTE experience is the diversity. Um, My experience before going to Guangzhou was very northern China, industrial, sort of rust belt based. Um, And now as we're living in the south, wow, yeah, two different countries, really. You know, those that are from China would know that certainly. Um, New Zealand, I'd say, is a conversation starter. You know, and again, my experience as a trade commissioner was almost like, well, isn't the product going to sell itself? Just the sort of made in New Zealand is good enough? No, no, it's not. That kind of opens a conversation and that's it. I really do get annoyed at some of the old war stories that get embellished and and polished around. And they're very old. They're very outdated. They might have been true 20 years ago, but they're no longer true. um, And yet they're still passed around as being, well, that's what you got to do in China. And it's not, you know. Somebody once said to me, the relevance of China is probably you've got about a, a plus and minus of one year. If you haven't been in there in sort of the last two years active, what happened 15 years ago is, is almost irrelevant. It makes an interesting story, but it's not really relevant for today. After five years, which is sort of like a dog years, it's kind of the end of a trade commissioner's life. <laughs> Your posting comes to an end and I was looking for a, a return role. I decided I was going to give Auckland as a go as a place to live. I haven't, hadn't lived here before. Thankfully, AT um, offered me a home. So AT, of course, is now branded Auckland Unlimited. Yan's here today as a former, former colleague, team member of mine. In one area I had a real pleasure of working in was the tripartite. Now, it's probably not super well known, but it goes back several years ago, and it's renewed from time to time, that the cities of Los Angeles, Auckland, and Guangzhou at a city to civil, city to city level, have all signed and maintained an agreement on a number of pillars that they would share best practice and share knowledge with each other. And there's typically summits that are held in the various cities. Back when we could travel, summits were held, you know, that were bringing the city business people, civic leaders together. And because I had some affiliation with all three cities in some way, I kind of became known as Mr. Tripartite as a, as a nickname inside the organization for a while. But what I thought here was quite interesting is about why these three cities. And firstly, they're not political capitals, right? It's not Washington, Beijing, you know, uh, Wellington. It's their commercial cities, their port cities, their trade cities, their logistics cities, their entertainment cities, their sports cities. There's there's a number of threads that actually tied these three uh, cities together in some way. That if you kind of scratch the surface, you say, yeah, it actually makes some sense that these three cities do actually get together and share some best practice and some learnings with each other. 
And in their own way, all the cities also had hosted their own kind of version of a tech week as well, which also kind of made me excited as I like those sorts of things. And, and oftentimes the uh, summits would kind of overlap with some of those tech activities. So some of the takeaways from my time, my brief time with ATED was, again, it's not all about food and beverage or agricultural products or fast moving consumer goods. Again, entertainment, tech, manufacturing, services all have a really relevant play at the table. Diversity, again, really important. Again, the diversity myself now, having lived in Christchurch, now in Auckland, seeing again, a difference from in our own country here, and likewise growing up in Los Angeles, realizing that you don't approach Los Angeles the same way you would Houston or New York or Chicago, you know, that there's diversity in all the countries. And so as a result, to me, micro strategies, micro insights, are real where you find the real gold, the real value, get into the real details of a given region, a given market. And that those relationships, those regional relationships can be very, very powerful, especially in a China context. Provincial government, city level government are, are far more influential, I would say, rather than powerful than city government would be here in a New Zealand context. Last stop on the bus, Faction. So after nearly seven years in public service, I thought it was about time I, get, I try something to, back in sort of real business again. But quite honestly, um, although I wouldn't say so during an interview, I, I sort of thought, well, had I lost my edge? Had I lost my kind of commercial mojo, you know, whatever you want to call it? And after going on some various interviews and, and thankfully at the time actually having sort of two competing job offers, um, I was able to join Fantian initially as their head of sales, in part, I'd say because of the China experience and the China ownership becoming the general manager. Now, what does Fatian do? So we have been for years part of Fisher & Paykel Appliances Group, you might say. We're a production machinery limited. We make the machines that make your machine. So if you think about your dish drawer, your washing machine, your fridge, the, all those machines in our homes, those are machines, are made in highly automated, very, very advanced factories around the world. But surprisingly, and as I learned when joining Fatian, very little human intervention, you know, very, very little. And we make those factory machines really, really complex, very large, meters and meters long, tens of meters long. So our machinery that we produced over the years is responsible for about 21 or more million home appliance components or assemblies coming out every year, about half of that in China. So to talk a little bit about Fatian, and I'll close in shortly and just open up for questions and answers, is just some people might have watched this video, this documentary. American factory. If you haven't, I see a few grins and so on. I thought it was pretty balanced in a way, right? There's no right side, wrong side, just, you know, things not happening as like what you like. That's sort of my world, I have to say. You know, that's, that's the world. That's the, the relationship that I do is we've got overseas ownership. We've got overseas ownership that is incredibly powerful and well-funded. And it's, like Charlie said, through acquisitions, Hire is the largest home appliance manufacturer in the world. We are a blemish on their balance sheet, right? We're a rounding error, you might say, in their overall size of their corporation. So we don't have a lot of power as such to negotiate with them. But what we do have is a lot of know-how. You know, we know how to do a lot of things that inherently aren't part of their internal know-how. So that's my, how often parts of my days are taken up is negotiating with our parent company. I was talking before we sat down for meals that the parent company has a bit of a confused relationship with us because they see us as a business unit. They want us to make a profit as long as we don't make that profit on their projects. 
So we have to do their projects on the cheap and yet still make a profit as a company. Okay, well, how does that work? But anyway, that, that's the kind of dilemma there. So what do I find out about the factian challenges? I wouldn't call them takeaways yet because I'm still there. Is find the blend. You know, how do you turn blue and red into purple? You know, find the compromise in a way. Find some mix that works out well and aim for that mix. You know, don't see everything as black and white. In the China world and certainly in the higher world, speed is everything. Fisher and Paykel, you know, I think from the time a, a product, a new version of a washing machine, let's say, or a new version of a dish drawer would be sort of envisaged, put on paper, it could be three years before that product was actually in, in your Noel Leeming shops or Harvey Norman. That's not the kind of speed that Pyre wants to operate at. You know, they want things done within 12 calendar months or less. And so we have to move much more quickly. And again, that point about even as a small little mouse in a way, you know, where do we compromise and yet where do we take a stand? You know, some of the areas we have to take a stand on is worker conditions, you know, worker well-being. There's certain things there we will just not compromise on. And they know that. And they, I think they actually respect us for that. So bring it together, especially with the fat team job. I think I'd say I've become a bit of a stoic, you know, just learning to accept what you can and cannot change or what you can or cannot influence. Finding that combo. I like to say that, you know, fish and chips, wine and cheese, pizza and beer, whatever, throw your combination in there. It's not one or the other. It's the combo that makes it great, right? So find the combo. What is it that's great about New Zealand companies? What's great about the New Zealand, uh, the China market, the China way of doing things? Find that combination and invest with time. I would say more so. Charlie and I were talking about this over a coffee one day and just saying it's, if I look back on the successes that, in the, especially in the contest years, it was far more an investment of time than it was of money. And that's why I say about this whole scalability myth thing to me is people throw lots of money. Oh, the, the, the ratio of money to time is just way out of balance, frankly, in many cases. So looking forward, it's not all about the rear vision mirror. So I obviously love technology and manufacturing. I think that's kind of come through. Um, I also love that blending of New Zealand and China. I think there are tremendous untapped resources to still leverage that capability of bringing more New Zealand technology and manufactured products into China. I would encourage all companies that are in the manufacturing space, this one to me is super important, look for the added value. Look for ways of, of adding more value before you ship the product. How can that product become more valuable and increase the value of what you're offering? And then as we live through it again, encourage companies dare to internationalize and not just export. To me, they're two different things, right? It's not just about containers leaving Portland port. It's internationalizing the business and that will be the real path to success. On behalf of NZCTA and the North Asia Cape team, I would like to thank John for sharing his China experience with characteristic candor and humor. To join future breakfast seminars, subscribe to our newsletter on our website www.nzcta.co.nz. For more podcasts, please follow the New Zealand China Council on iTunes, Spotify or SoundCloud. Thanks for listening.